Welcome to the Byline Times podcast, the Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say. My name's Adrian Goldberg and this week, universities challenged. Are they doing enough to ensure that youngsters from disadvantaged and minority backgrounds enjoy a fair chance to get a degree, especially in this time of coronavirus? Applications to study were assessed this year on grades predicted by teachers. But how accurate are they? We'll hear from one graduate who grew up in one of the most deprived parts of Britain and battled her way to Oxford University. So the barriers and the hurdles were so much coming from inner city Birmingham as a British Muslim woman of Kashmiri heritage in an area that doesn't have high success rates of either education or educational and social outcomes. So I experienced those barriers firsthand. And when youngsters do get to uni in this time of pandemic, will it all be worth it? So many of my friends graduated with a first class degree. They're extremely intelligent people and they're back in the same retail jobs that they had when they were 15, 16 doing their GCSEs. So people are questioning, I've paid so much money for my degree. I'm in so much debt. What for? And later, the Brexit supporters who have encouraged their fellow Brits to quit the European Union, but who don't love this country quite enough to base themselves here permanently themselves. Now, Michael Ashcroft, Lord Michael Ashcroft, has resigned from the House of Lords, but was a key pusher of Brexit. He's been living in Belize most of his life and has a big bank there. And of course, the Daily Mail, that arch-europhobic newspaper, is owned by Lord Rothermere, who is domiciled for tax purposes in France, which happens to be in Europe. All that to come. First, just a reminder that the Byline Times isn't owned by a media tycoon and we aren't reliant on big corporate advertisers to pay the bills. That means we can challenge the abuse of money or power or both wherever it arises. And it's all thanks to people like you who subscribe to our monthly newspaper, The Byline Times. At just £36 a year, it's tremendous value and it's still not too late to get your order in for Christmas. You'll find details of how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Now, a disadvantaged youngsters facing class war in the classroom as they try to make a better life for themselves by going to university. Dr Saria B thinks so. As well as being a teacher at SOAS in London and Edinburgh University, she's CEO of the Equality Act Review, which surveyed more than 2,000 students about their educational experiences during COVID. Her conclusion is that the grading fiasco in the summer further entrenched class and racial inequality in the university system. In this interview, we'll also hear from Elisa Anwar about what it was like to graduate in the year of the pandemic. But first, Surya, with a remarkable personal story that fueled her desire to help other youngsters from a similar background access higher education. I was born and raised in inner city Birmingham, an area called Alum Rock. I went to a local state school here and from there I went on to a sixth form and at my sixth form I was told that I would not get into any university by my sixth form careers advisor. And bear in mind that the community that I was born and raised in is one of the most disadvantaged communities in the UK. It has a high unemployment rate, a high rate of poverty and 
and a lot of students on free school meals, which I was also one. I received free school meals throughout my education up until age of 16. And so this lack of belief in me by teachers was quite common. And so I was not going to allow a white man in a suit, careers advisor, determine the rest of my future for me. And I continued to apply to universities. I submitted my UCAS application. And one of my options was Oxford University. And I was invited to an interview. And subsequently, I was accepted at Magdalen College to study an undergrad in human sciences. And really, it showed that someone from Alum Rock in Birmingham can go on to study at Oxford. And despite the lack of belief in you, by teachers and by six former careers advisors. And really, it was alarming to me when the coronavirus lockdown was announced and school exams were announced that they were going to be cancelled, that in pre-pandemic conditions, as a Muslim, British Muslim woman from a low socioeconomic background, state school educated, in pre-pandemic conditions, I experienced difficulty in accessing higher education, further education, I was really concerned about what was going to happen to students like myself from backgrounds like mine and their future and life and educational outcomes. And so my research comes from a very personal lived experience of my own life history. Okay, I'll talk about the research in a moment, Saria, but just tell me why that careers advisor in your sixth form said that you were not university material. To be honest, I am still to answer that question myself. I'm just really like dumbfounded to this day. After Christmas, I went into the new year and I kind of showed him my um, my offer letter and I said, oh, I've got a belated Christmas present for you. And he opened it and the whole team were really shocked. It really gobsmacked at the fact that I had made it. And I, you know, I had to take two weeks off to college, sixth form, to prepare for my Oxford interview. And I sat in Birmingham Central Library because my teachers told me that they wouldn't, uh, they were not paid enough to prepare me for my interviews. And my peers, on the other hand, uh, who had, uh, who I studied with at Oxford were primed from a very young age to get into Oxford they were primed you know their parents were able to afford this kind of private education this private preparation for the Oxford interview which is thought to be an art form in terms of performance but I I self-prepared by sitting in Birmingham Central Library taking two weeks off my sixth form education to get through to Oxford in the first place. So the barriers and the hurdles were so much coming from inner city Birmingham as a British Muslim woman of Kashmiri heritage in an area that doesn't have high success rates of either education or educational and social outcomes. So I experienced those barriers firsthand. And I think teachers are often very detached and devoid of the lived realities of students. And, you know, there was something by Times Higher Education recently that said that less than half of school have BME teachers. I think not having teachers from these backgrounds who don't, who cannot relate to students and their aspirations and the grit that they have, because there's, you know, there's this, studies have shown time and again that grit in BME students is high and that's what often gets them through. And I think teachers underestimate very often the grit and the determination that students from our backgrounds, from backgrounds like mine have. When you carried out your research for the Equality Act review then, what were you looking at and what did you find? The first aspect of our research looked at the experiences and the concerns of students who had their exam results cancelled. And this took place between April and May. The survey uh, was put out in April and May this year. And the report was launched in June 2020, so just before predicted grades were published. And we found that 80% of students were concerned about their grades being predicted and 85% of all students were from BAME backgrounds. 
and lower income backgrounds. Now, a lot of the concerns were to do with bias from teachers, their mitigating circumstances, such as mental health, such as bereavement, were not taken into consideration. The fact that they hadn't completed coursework and therefore predicted grades were not going to be based on a holistic set of information that the government said that it would be based on. And so that was the first part of our research. The second part of our research, the recent report, the Predicting Futures 2.0, which was published early December, surveyed students who had received their exam results and traced their experiences and outcomes, educational and social outcomes. We found that about 80% were from BAME backgrounds and a lot of them, about 65% missed out on university offers and 60% were from low household income. So this intersection of 60% being from low household incomes, 80% being from BAME backgrounds, this intersection of race and class or ethnicity, race, ethnicity and class was exacerbated the impact on the most disadvantaged who received predicted grades. And, you know, 65% of 2,091 respondents losing out on university places is absolutely shocking. And this was allowed by the government. And it's kind of state-sanctioned, widespread, disadvantaged postcode lottery system that's been enabled this year. A lot more could have been done. As early as April, we were telling the Department for Education to make sure that schools past performances in GCSE and A-levels was not to be taken into consideration in the algorithm, but they went ahead and allowed that to be part of the algorithm. And even though this, this kind of detail now is brushed under the carpet, it's still very much part of the predicted grades that students received even after the U-turn that the government announced in August. There's so many problems with predicted grades that is that's not talked about in a transparent way and is being currently glossed over by the government. So just so we're clear, though, the algorithm which was used to predict grades was scrapped, wasn't it? And instead, the government said, we will rely on predicted grades from school. So the algorithm was no longer part of the equation, but you're concerned that the predicted grades perhaps reflect some of the entrenched differences between schools maybe in better off areas and schools in less well-off areas where perhaps expectations of students are lower, as was proved to be the case with you personally. Yes, absolutely. So one of the recommendations we made as early as April and as a result of our first report was that teachers need to be bias trained and ensure that they were not penalising students outside of their academic potential. And do you think that's what happened to you personally, that there was an unconscious bias working which saw a young woman wearing a headscarf from a Kashmiri Muslim background not seeing you as potential Oxbridge material? Oh, absolutely. You know, someone like me doesn't fit the fit the norm, you know, of, of the, the representation of who can and who does get into Oxford or who is deserving of getting into Oxford. I certainly believe that even though the university has made efforts to recruit people from diverse backgrounds, I think going back to the algorithm and predicted grades, teachers at that level still have this unconscious bias, which is what I experienced. There's a diverse, rich data set and numerous studies that prove that black boys are underestimated. They are likely to be excluded. Lower income students and boys, particularly from lower income backgrounds, are likely to be excluded. And regardless of gender, BAME and 
students from lower income backgrounds are generally underestimated in terms of their grades. And I think that's really stark when you put into the hands of teachers the futures of many young people and rely on on them to predict their futures, which is exactly what's happening. It's predicting futures. I mean, in my case, the teacher did not know that I was going to get into Oxford. He predicted that I would not get into any university. And yet still, I got into Oxford. I completed my master's. I then went on to do my PhD, the final year of which I completed at Yale. Had my grades been predicted based on what my teachers had thought for me, I would never have made it this far. And I think that's a really important thing to highlight is that how many careers, how many people like me from my background have lost out on futures and access to resources and opportunities in the way that I've been able to access them because my grades weren't predicted and I continued to persevere despite their underestimations. But what our recent report is showing is that students now have a lot high level of mental health difficulties as a result of predicted grades. Students have a loss of trust in the system. They have a loss of aspiration, a loss of talent because of their predicted grades. They're really negatively impacted by these predicted grades because they've they've just lost that on their futures because of grade predictions. It is difficult, though, for the government, isn't it, Saria? Because they didn't create the pandemic. They've had to react to it. They introduced algorithms to predict grades when it was pointed out that this would unfairly disadvantage some children. They did a U-turn and they went down the route of going with predicted grades, which is what the educational establishment and many students were asking of them. What more realistically do you think they could do? Yeah, I think by the time that the U-turn was announced, it was far, far too late for thousands of students who had already lost out on their university offers, on their sixth form offers. It was far too late to reverse the decisions that sixth forms and universities had made who were experiencing a high demand. And the whole system was not prepared. I mean, think of it as a process, you know, A to B and B to C. You know, if if the U-turn is happening at A, but points B and C are not prepared for that U-turn, then, you know, there's only a limited amount of students that can surpass points B and C. And that's what's happened at sixth form and university level. The other thing that's really important is over a third of our students said that their schools prohibited them, the centre assessments prohibited them from uh, submitting appeals about their, for their grades. And this was a significant challenge. So the appeals process was not really streamlined. It was not fit for purpose. And only in our 2000 plus survey respondents, 0.2% which amounted to two students who received a positive change in their grade, uh, in their predicted grade, which amounted to them acquiring their university offers. Two out of 2,000 plus is astonishing. It's appalling. And it shows the the, the flawed nature of the appeals process. From the get-go, the this whole process could, be, could have been better managed, better approached. And the advice and the real-life experiences of people like myself could have been really taken into account by the government but there was a lack of engagement from Ofqual and the DfE as well from the outset. Elisa Anwar you're someone who's at the other end of this process you've written for Byline Times about being a graduate emerging onto the jobs market having finished your studies in the year of the pandemic how's that been for you? It's been utterly terrible if I'm honest we're known as the corona class the class of 2020 because the pandemic hit in March and for me, my university just 
sort of shut its doors on us. And my course just didn't go online. We had no contact hours. We just finished. And I had to get my degree without any graduation. And we're still promised a graduation. But are we going to get it? I don't really think so anymore. I lost half of my contact hours due to strike action that year alone. And then the pandemic cut off my final term. It makes me question where my money was going this year. And I think from my perspective and the perspective of so many students from my graduating class, I think we're just a bit fed up and nobody listens to us. And it was interesting that you were talking about the A-level U-turn there. It happened because students protested. It didn't happen because the government suddenly realised they'd made a mistake. It was because so many people took to the streets, protested outside of Downing Street and said, this is not fair. If the students hadn't done that, I think they would have got away with it. And you say that you're not sure if you're going to get a graduation ceremony. You're not sure if you and your peers are going to get jobs either, are you? I've seen research suggesting that almost a third of graduate job offers have either been deferred or withdrawn. I think what's really frustrating is I was very fortunate enough to go to Durham and so many of my friends graduated with a first class degree they're extremely intelligent people and they're back in the same retail jobs that they had when they were 15, 16 doing their GCSEs. So people are questioning, I've paid so much money for my degree. I'm in so much debt. What for? And I have to really ask, you know, what for? It's not really helped us at all. There are no jobs out there. And I'm now doing my broadcasting master's. And the whole point of my degree is that we're very employable. At the end of it, we have recruiters that come in, uh, do workshops with us. They they hire us as they go along. And we've had none of that this year. So even my cohort now is wondering whether we're going to come out of probably the most employable master's degree for broadcasting unemployed. Mm. Of course, as I mentioned to Saria, the government didn't create the COVID pandemic. They didn't create the jobs crisis. What do you expect politicians to do to help people like you? So I've posed that question to actually a lot of young people because I work with the Intergenerational Foundation and part of that I'm talking to as many young people from as many different backgrounds as possible to ask them what they want the government to do. And a lot of students have turned around and said they just want an apology from the government. They want the government to hold their hands up and go, well, sorry, we got this wrong because they've not actually done that. A lot of students want a refund of their fees because, you know, we entered into this contract with universities. We're under the Consumer Rights Act. We're paying for uh, a facility that's not really being provided. Online learning is not the same as in-person teaching. We want the government to acknowledge that we exist as a cohort. I think young people very much get shrugged under the rug and then the last minute, they, the government sort of turn around and go, oh, well, we've got to do something about that. Like Surya said, they they knew early on that they needed to sort their A-levels and summer exams out, yet they waited till the last minute. And I think that's going to keep on happening. I have a feeling we're going to have the same, same situation again this year. And Surya, I just want to ask you about your reaction to what the government has said since, because we're looking ahead now to next year's exams. And earlier this month, the government said that there will be more generous grading than usual in line with national outcomes from 2020 to ensure that students are not disadvantaged. Students will receive advance notice of some topic areas covered in GCSE 
AS and A-levels to help them focus revision. There'll be more use of exam aids, such as formula sheets. There'll be additional exams to give students a second chance to sit the paper if the main exams or assessments are missed due to illness or self-isolation. And there'll be a new expert group to look at differential learning and to monitor the variation of the impact of the pandemic on students across the country. So it does appear to, it, that would suggest that they are listening to some of the concerns that you're raising in this discussion. I think any step that is announced by the government are definitely welcomed. I think they are one step closer to achieving equality and minimising the the vast inequality and the entrenched inequalities that have been created post uh, kind of grade predictions as a result of coronavirus. But I think there's a lot more to be done. So, for example, uh, students uh, have not been contacted by the DfE. You know, as Alyssa said, an apology would be would be welcomed. I think one of the recommendations that we make in our report is that a care package, you know, a letter with a pamphlet, with some details of supportive organisations, would be great for those who have missed out on university offers and are basically sitting and feeling this absolute loss of their this excruciating loss of their future and their options and their prospects uh, to offer skills workshops and this is something that we we have been asking the DfE to offer since uh, June this year to offer skills workshops for students uh, to continue their personal and professional development I think that's so important to ensure that the diversity of future workplaces is not lost because a lot of the students who have experienced Experienced the harshest reality of this grade predictions are BAME students and those from lower economic, socioeconomic backgrounds. And so the government needs to offer them more support. And also going forward, I think for next year's appeals process, for next year's grade predictions or grading process, there needs to be a system that accounts for special education needs, such as dyslexia. A lot of students uh, for the past year, their their special education needs were not taking, uh, taken into consideration when their grades were predicted, even by teachers, let alone the algorithm. Mitigating circumstances such as bereavement and health conditions such as uh, mental health, which is quite severe and has been exacerbated as a result of the pandemic, especially in in and amongst young people. And so a lot of these need to, a lot of these factors need to be taken into consideration and more holistic approach needs to be taken. And we, we really cannot allow for education to not be a tool for social mobility because then what we're doing is we, we're crippling a nation. That's Dr. Saria B with Alisa Anwar. Now, we did put many of the points raised by Saria to the Department for Education. They referred us to a newly published report by UCAS, who manage the application system for British universities. This reveals that more students from the most disadvantaged backgrounds in the UK entered higher education in 2020 than ever before, and this is reflected in the most selective universities and courses as well. And that, of course, is something to celebrate. But what the figures don't tell us about are the youngsters like Saria, whose teachers didn't, for one reason or another, see them as top university material. It's also worth noting that when it comes to students getting into the most selective universities, the report says that on current trends, it'll take, wait for it, 332 years to close the equality gap between the most disadvantaged and the least disadvantaged students. I'm Adrian Goldberg. You're listening to the Byline Times podcast. 
Now, one curious feature of Brexit is the number of prominent supporters of the Leave campaign who have actually left Britain, or in some cases, never lived here at all. From Byline TV, here's Byline Times executive editor Peter Jukes. It's become clear that Brexit means for several millionaire Brexiteers not leaving the EU, but them leaving Britain. First, there's Jim Radcliffe, who's going to make his British heir to the famous Land Rover Defender in Wales. He's now making it in France and has moved his tax domicile from Hampshire to Monaco. Monaco is proving quite popular with Brexiteers as Ratcliffe will be joining Simon Dolan, the businessman who's challenged COVID-19 restrictions in the UK and has been living in Monaco since 2013. One of the most prominent Brexiteers was, of course, James Dyson, the manufacturer of the famous vacuum cleaner. Well, he's hoovering up his profits by moving his HQ from Wiltshire to Singapore. Uh, and then there's the famously languid Jacob Rees-Mogg, who co-founded Somerset Asset Capital Management, which has now moved from Somerset to Dublin. Ireland is another famous Brexiteer hotspot, because guess who lives there? Yes, that arch sceptic Paul Staines, behind the Guido Fawkes blog, which is, by the way, not published in the UK. Now, Michael Ashcroft, Lord Michael Ashcroft, has resigned from the House of Lords, but was a key pusher of Brexit. He's been living in Belize most of his life and has a big bank there. And of course, the Daily Mail, that arch-europhobic newspaper, is owned by Lord Rothermere, who is domiciled for tax purposes in France, which happens to be in Europe. And talking of europhobic newspapers, of course, there's the Barclay Brothers, owners of The Spectator and The Telegraph, who spend their time apparently between Monaco and their own private tax haven in the Channel Islands. And talking of offshore tax havens, there are two senior Brexiteers who couldn't vote because they lived in them, Simon Nixon in Jersey and Jim Mellon in the Isle of Man. Both gave substantial donations to Leave campaigns. So now we've solved the enigma of what Theresa May said. Yes, Brexit means Brexit. It means senior Brexiteers exiting Britain. It's a bit like they say about celebrities. If you really want to meet one, go to the Reading Festival. And if you want to meet a senior Brexiteer, go to Europe. Peter Jukes. Before we go, just a reminder that this podcast and the Byline Times itself doesn't owe allegiance to any political party. We aren't backed by a media tycoon, nor do we depend on funding from any corporate source. That's why we can hold money and power to account, without fear, without favour, and tell you what the papers don't say. But we can only do it with your help. If you can't think of what to buy a friend or a loved one for Christmas, how about a subscription to our monthly paper, The Byline Times? Get more details at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. I'm Adrian Goldberg. See you next week.